Do you invest in the Hong Kong stock market? My guest today calls it the gateway to China. It has its own quirks, from odd lots to red chips, and the influence of the Hong Kong, Shanghai, Shenzhen Stock Connect. Nowadays, China tech firms listed in the US are coming home via secondary listings. Given the increasing threats from the US and its regulations, there's also delisting risks. What happens in a delisting? What are the things you need to know as an investor? We also look into a sector that might be overlooked where the media is focusing a lot on China tech. Find out what that sector is and what other opportunities are there. Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chill with TFC episode. In this series, we talk to interesting people with relevant experience and insights to help us learn from their perspectives so that we can create the life we love and manage our finances as well. My guest today has more than 10 years of content experience in the financial industry, including stints at Stroders and The Motley Fool. He's head of content and investment lead at Prosperous by CGS CIMB Securities. Let's welcome Timothy Phillips. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you grew up in Hong Kong. Yeah. You understand the Hong Kong market. Yeah. Tell us what we need to know about the Hong Kong market and what do we need to know before investing in it? Okay, so I think for investors, it's always seen as the gateway to China, which is very, very true, right? So, I mean, ever since the handover in 1997, there has been a lot of Chinese companies that would IPO in Hong Kong. And obviously in today's market now, you're seeing a lot of the big giants like Alibaba and Tencent and JD and Baidu that have listings in, in Hong Kong. But I think for investors, it's important to remember that the Hong Kong market, or at least the Hang Seng Index, still has a lot of Hong Kong-based companies in it. Um, and so the Hang Seng Index is moving towards more China-based companies in, in terms of its constituent list. But there's still a lot of Hong Kong-based companies in there, such as you know CLP, which is a utilities provider, uh, as well as a lot of property companies as well. So I think for investors, it's more about buying into China exposure. And so I think you get that in Hong Kong with a lot of the regulation and, I guess, investor protections that you'd expect from markets like in the US or Europe. And so I think it's a mix of the best of both worlds, getting the, you know, the, the exposure to liquidity and capital markets that you do in Hong Kong and the free flow of capital, as well as exposure to some really great Chinese, uh, Chinese companies. Let me understand more about the Hang Seng Index. So how much of yeah. it is you know, a gateway to China as you right, described it? Right. Or how much of it is Hong Kong companies? So at the moment, they have 64 companies in the Hang Seng Index. Mm -hmm. They've gone through a reform in sort of in the middle of 2020 where they really want to increase the number. It was initially 50 or it was 50 only about you know, 12, 18 months ago. And now it's up to 64. But eventually they want to bring that number to about 100. Um, at the moment, they still have about 25 to 30 companies in the index that are actually Hong Kong, or they want to keep it in terms of pure Hong Kong exposure. Um, but increasingly, obviously, you'll see that shift to three quarters of uh, China exposure. So at the moment, information technology, so tech, has about 27% weighting. Um, if you think back to about seven years ago, it only had about a 9% weighting. And up until about, you know, sort of 
two, three years ago, the only information technology company officially was Tencent. And obviously that's changing now because you have Meituan, you have Alibaba, you have JD, they're all, all moving into the, uh, into the Hang Seng Index. So there's definitely a better representation from information technology, from consumer discretionary, and also from, uh, from healthcare. Because healthcare, until about two years ago, wasn't actually a sector in the Hang Seng Index. So it didn't actually exist um, sort of three or four years ago. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've been hearing a lot about companies from China in the media recently. Yeah. Give us a lowdown. Give us a brief overview of what's happened, right? Let's start from 2020 right. and now we're in early 2021. Well, my timeline is all wrong. <laughs> Let's start from 2021 right. and then what happened in 2022, what's happening right now. Okay, okay. Uh, COVID so, has, has screwed up my timeline yeah. a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, 2020, yeah, okay. So 2021, 2021. So I guess we go back to sort of November 2020 when there was the Ant IPO that was about to IPO and then that got um, nixed, right? That got that got cancelled because of the whole Jack Maher issue with him talking about the power of, of Ant and, and you know, these these old banks, these old state enterpri- state-owned enterprise banks and so he was criticising them in a symposium in Shanghai and so, you know, that was that was fingered as the as the main cause of why it was cancelled by the Chinese government. Um, and that's then, season one. Yeah, that was that's sort of like Act <laughs> One, right? So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was that was what happened at the beginning, um, and so I think that then became sort of the yeah, as you said, the opening act for what was really you know a barrage of regulation against Chinese tech, and so you saw the Chinese government then increase scrutiny of a lot of different, I guess, subsectors of tech, and one of the big ones was obviously education, technology, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the online tutoring companies. Effectively, their business model was shut down. So you saw a lot of the share prices, for example, in New Oriental Education Technology and GSU, you know, tech, they, they went down sort of 70, 80, 90% in a, in a matter of, I don't know, maybe three or four months in early 2021. Um, and then you saw, obviously, then the DD listing, DD Chuxing listing in, in sort of June or July, I think, of last year. Um, and that was done against the wishes of the Chinese government, against the wishes of the cybersecurity uh, administration, um, which had, you know, I think they'd warned Didi about some infringements or sensitive data that they that they had and that they had issues with. I think they had actually initially tried to list in Hong Kong, but then they actually got rebuffed there because they were questioned about some of the sensitivity of the data. But then they went straight across to the US and listed in the US. So I think that obviously uh, riled the Chinese government. Um, they then banned or, or banned any further downloads of the DD app. And, and, and then you obviously can see what happened to the share price in DD that it actually cratered um, after the IPO initially IPO'd. Uh, and then it fell, I think, in the following week by like 20 or 30%. So it wasn't a great, it wasn't a great debut. Um, and I think that's kind of come to a head with the, the idea of common prosperity from, you know, President Xi Jinping, who wants to look at where China is headed over the next five to 10 years. Um, and so there's a lot of focus on a li- little bit more of the, I guess what you'd say, hard tech. And so you've seen a shift in capital flows or in terms of investment flows away from the soft tech, which is the software and services and you know the, the type of online gaming and you know the e-commerce names and more a bit more towards the semiconductors, the green energy companies. I think the hardware that is going to power, I guess, you know, the Chinese economy over the next five to 10 years. And this is where a lot of investors at the moment see opportunities because it aligns with the Chinese government's priorities. And so that's where we bring ourselves uh, into today. So I think this, some of these 
names have sold off quite heavily. So Baba, for instance, mm. has sold off, you know, at least 50, 60% over the past year. But Tencent has held up relatively better, but even that is is off, I think, 30% from its, you know, 30, 40% from its highs. What's the take on this crash? Because I'm hearing generally two schools of thought online well, with details in between, but generally one side is saying that, you know, you really can't predict what the government can do. Mm. There's a lot of political concerns. So yep. don't invest, don't catch falling knives, right? right, right. And the other school of thought is saying that, okay, well, it's all undervalued. It's yeah. a great buy right yeah. now. Alibaba, great buy. Yeah. You know, what's your take? And especially you mentioned that you're a long-term investor yourself. Right. I think, I mean, I'm somewhere probably in between. I know that's that's not really an answer, but I, I definitely think now is a time in China where I guess over the past decade, we didn't really have to think about politics when we invested because if you had put money into Tencent or to JD, you would have done exceptionally well and you really wouldn't have to have monitored it really much. You would have just ridden the wave. And, you know, Tencent in terms of how it compounded, I think even after its fall, you know, it's still up 1,200% over 10 years or something. So it's done exceptionally well, but you really didn't have to do much. Um, You know, you just put that money into Tencent and you knew it would probably do well. It continued to do well because they as businesses weren't really constrained or weren't really controlled. Um, and now that's changing, right? That's shifting. And so I think the Chinese government is definitely playing a stronger hand in the economy and in business. Um, you're seeing that play out in terms of how many representatives from the CCP have to be on boards or, you know, have to be in, on company on company uh, committees. So there's definitely more influence from the Chinese Communist Party. And so I think that is rattling investors. It doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities, but if you do invest into China now, you have to be cognizant of the fact that politics plays a really, really big part in it. And so you can't just say this is a great company based on the fundamentals and this company is going to do really, really well in terms of its share price return and you know what you would normally expect from a stock market. So I think in terms of the capital markets, definitely being politicized. So that's that's something that for me is is a risk that you have to be, that you have to accept. But then the prize at the end of the, you know, the, the pot at the end of the rainbow, so to speak, is so big, isn't it? I mean, China is a, as, as an economy, 1.4 billion people, you know, second largest economy in the world. The consumer spend of GDP is still, you know, mid 50s compared to what you'd see in the US of 70% upwards. So there's a big gap for China to fill and there's still a lot of growth in China. So I think there is a lot of opportunity, but you have to be nimble and you have to be someone who's willing to reassess your investment thesis based on what the Chinese Communist Party is doing or, you know, or what you're seeing. So there's a lot more geopolitics involved and you have to do a lot more of the grunt work in terms of understanding how the Chinese Communist Party thinks. Okay, so when you see uh, in between, are you observing what's going on and looking for a good opportunity to go in? Yeah. What, what are you doing? I think I'm observing a bit. Yeah, so I'm observing a bit at this point in time. I mean, for me, I'm a bit more focused on, you know, companies that are in less sensitive sectors, things that are going to be focused on improving the livelihoods of, you know, Chinese people over the long term that are sustainable sectors, are sustainable business models, and less focused, I guess, on the next hot trend or video streaming or anything social media related, I think is just not something that maybe the government is really keen on. So, so what if are you're those thinking, sectors? Because well, education yeah. is hit, gaming is hit, yeah. tech. I think it's a bit more focused maybe on consumer discretionary, but in the right sectors. So for example, Mount yeah, maybe not <laughs> Mount 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 Hai is definitely one that I think would get hit because it's just alcohol's bad. I mean, it's like a sin stop, right? And right. that's not good for your health. So 
to me that doesn't seem relationships doing yeah. business meetings yeah because initially it was the whole it's the corruption thing right because of the high-powered officials but i think longer term it's oh this is an alcohol and it's bad for your health and then you've got alcohol you know how many people use alcohol and and you know, you can re- link that to adverse health outcomes over the long term. And so the government, I assume, probably wouldn't be too too keen of, on that. So for me, I'm looking at consumer discretionary things um, like leaning and enter in, in the sportswear sector. It aligns with the government's sort of outlook for better outcomes for, you know, in terms of health outcomes, you just get, get people moving, get people interested in, in going uh, to do exercise. It's local, which I think is great because that's all what, you know, Chinese consumers are moving towards local now. They're not really focused on consuming foreign brands or there's not that premium on foreign brands that there used to be now because some of these Chinese brands are obviously innovating and doing some really great things and going direct to the consumer and building their own brand. Um, So I think there is, those are the types of sectors, but again, they're also a bit crowded and a bit expensive. So they've come down a bit recently, but I think longer term, that type of thing. And in insurance, you know, I look at AIA as a great company that focuses on helping the underinsured find either life insurance or health insurance. And so there's a massive insurance gap in Asia, right? And so they're trying to meet that and help the government, I guess, focus on helping people provide some sort of social safety net, because in China, there isn't that social safety net that you'd expect maybe in Europe, um, or even to a certain extent, the US. So that, again, is something that focuses on sustainable growth. It's helping households be a bit more responsible. It's helping them find uh, you know, a, social, a social good. So I think that, to me, is where you're going to find more of the sustainable opportunities and less maybe in you know, gaming in Macau or alcohol stocks or, you know, um, as I said, social media streaming. And yeah, you know, there, are, there are lots of different activities that you wouldn't think would offend maybe the Chinese government, but they do sort of this... Yeah, I think there was a there's a crackdown a few months ago on effeminate behavior and that kind of thing. And then you mm-hmm. think, wow, that goes back to, to streaming or to LGBT. And then so there's lots of different angles to that. You think, well, how, you know, that how does that to most people that might not appear offensive, but maybe to the Chinese government it is offensive. So mm-hmm. there are these types of things that you need to, I guess, put yourself yourselves in that mindset and understand how they're thinking. And that can be challenging because that's not always the easiest, uh, you know, the easiest way to, like, I guess, to invest. And yeah, well, it's, it's like something I almost hard. forgot multi is considered a vice with open inverted commas. Thank yeah. You, I mean, it's, it's just such a common part of it's life. such a common part of life, and, right? Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. You yeah, brought yeah. it up. Yeah, it's, it's a vice. It's, it's a vice. But yeah, so, so, so maybe that's not, that doesn't fit into the common prosperity vision, right? So that's uh. something that you need to feel out. So I, I'm not fully comfortable going all in at this moment where a lot of people are saying it's undervalued and you should, you should go in and buy, you know, scoop it up and back up the truck, so to speak. But, you know, they were saying that about Alibaba for a long time and look how much further it's, um, it's fallen um, in the past sort of three, six months. So I don't think in the areas that, are traditionally, you know, what you'd say undervalued or social media, those types of stocks. I don't think that's not really where I see the future of Chinese stock markets. Um, I definitely think their heydays are, are past. Mm. Um, the kind of growth that you see Tencent having posted in the past decade, I just don't think that they'll recreate that in the next uh, in the next 10 years. Okay, well, what do you see for them? Like, is a value company, steady growth? Yeah, I think just steady growth. You're kind of seeing that already with Tencent returning capital to shareholders. I mean, they divested their JD stake. You know, they're they're selling off a few other stakes in, in other companies and, that, and they're probably going to maybe return capital to shareholders. One thing that people have said about the big giants like Baba and, and I guess JD and Tencent is they have a lot of cash, uh, net cash, and they don't really pay a dividend. Or Tencent, I think, was the only one who did pay a dividend, but it was, you know, fractional. It was like 0.3% yield or something. 
But now they're starting to think about or reassess capital allocation and where they should be returning, whether they should be returning cash, because the, I guess the environment's been set where they're not really going to be making major acquisitions in this environment. They're not, Tencent's not going to go out and spend $10 billion on a, a major acquisition, right? So I think it's a bit more about returning capital to shareholders and doing it in, in a cost-effective manner. You know, for example, with the JD state, they're paying the special dividend in, in JD shares, right? So it's all about steady growth. But, you know, the the devil's, I would play devil's advocate, you could see them being regulated like a utility, right? Because they're so important in the Chinese economy. The government in China really likes to have the control over what happens in the economy. And these guys are so big and so important in the economy. They could technically be seen as a utility. Um, and in that sense, you know, things could be capped, prices could be capped, um, and they could be regulated as a utility. And that, that would, you know, that would basically cap the growth. And, and for me, that's not something you want to see imposed on any business. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so well, you mentioned that you're a long-term investor, and, and then you're saying that you know with this, it's more value company, steady growth. Like, do you see that it's no longer a multi-bagger play? Because you know, yeah, we were talking about. I mean, yeah, outside of this podcast, you know, people right, are looking right. for the quick gains. You know, ten yeah, yeah, x, yeah, you know, ten right? percent yeah, 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 yeah. per year. That's so boring. That was boring. Yeah, <laughs> right. I think for me, yeah, that's the thing. I think if you're looking at, if you're really excited or jazzed about ten x, uh, they're definitely not going to be ten x, right? Because you're looking at. A, 10 cent, it's already 500 billion or like an Alibaba's, maybe it's gone down to 400, like sub 500. But to 10x, they'll have to turn into a $4 trillion or $5 trillion company. And that to me is, you know, that's be bigger than Apple. That's really not going to happen. And I don't think the Chinese government would let that happen. So, so I think for well, you, why, you why, know, why? yeah, <laughs> it might be too, too, too big, right? So, okay. um, but I think for, for people who want to have those 10x opportunities, I mean, I think this applies not just to Hong Kong and China, but just generally. You you have to look at the market cap situation where the company sits, right? I mean, where are the likelihood of of a 10x in 10 years or a 10x in, you know, to be reasonable 10x in 10 years is, is, is still quite fast a growth on a compounded annual growth basis. But if you think about the market cap segment, it's probably in the sort of 20 to 40 billion range, right? Or 20, like maybe sub, like, above 10 billion at least, because to get from 10 billion to 100 billion, you have to put in, that's a 10X, that would be 90 billion in market cap. As I said, if you have to get from 400 to um, 4 trillion, you're putting in 3.6 trillion of, of value has to be added, right? So there has to be a lot of that, that jump has to be huge if you're doing it with a bigger company. So the opportunity set for the 10X returns are likely to be, um, you know, in the in the lower market cap space rather than in the mega cap, which is anything above sort of three hundred uh, billion dollars. But having said that, obviously you take a bit more risk, right? Whereas if you invest in a ten cent or a baba, although you know maybe they haven't been that safe this year, but if you invest in an Apple or a Microsoft or whatever, you expect to gain reasonable or get a reasonable return over sort of five years. Okay, so definitely, yeah. well, most likely not a 10x play. Yeah. But what role do you think China companies should play in a portfolio? I think it should definitely be a part of your exposure. 
I think if you aren't really that interested in stock picking, it's maybe better to just go for an ETF. But my preference in the ETF space would be something a bit more focused maybe on um, hard tech. So it would be more the the names maybe listed on the A-share market. Um, you can buy individual A-share listed companies, such as Chinese shares, but listed in Shanghai or Shenzhen uh, through the Stock Connect in Hong Kong. But if you don't want to do that, then I think like a A-share ETF probably works. And there's a there's an iShares one, I think, which is MSCA China A. Mm-hmm. So ticker is A-shares for those who yeah. are not familiar. So, so A-shares is basically... Chinese listed stocks. So there are stocks that trade on the Shanghai or Shenzhen stock exchanges primarily, but obviously there are now multiple boards. There's a Beijing board that's come up for, for innovation and then there's a star board in Shanghai as well. So, But the main two exchanges are Shanghai and Shenzhen. And the Stock Connect is a program that allows uh, international investors to buy into China directly via Hong Kong and for mainland investors to buy into Hong Kong shares via the Stock Connect in the southbound. So the northbound is either you know, someone in Hong Kong who's a Hong Kong citizen or anyone of us actually buying in, into, a Hong Kong, uh, into a Hong Kong broker. And then they would buy the A share in the northbound. So that would be money flowing up north. Uh, and then southbound would be Chinese investors who want to buy Hong Kong stocks. And so one of the big things for the Chinese government is when you know, Alibaba went public in 2014, it was only in the US and that was a massive IPO. And I think they were a bit peeved that Chinese investors didn't manage to get any allocations out or couldn't buy it. Because if you're a Chinese investor, technically you can't move more than sort of 50,000 US annually. There's a quota on how much foreign exchange you can, you can, uh, you can change. So m- capital controls in China are basically capped, right? So they really didn't have the opportunity to buy, to buy freely, uh, you know, the, the Baba listing in New York. Um, and that's obviously changing with a lot of companies now in, in Hong Kong. So these give the opportunities to mainland Chinese, you know, mom and pop investors to buy stocks in Hong Kong that they are familiar with and that they interact with every day. So, so that's something that was launched in 2014 for Shanghai uh, and then 2016 for Shenzhen. So now there are two, uh, two Stock Connect programs. Mm. Well, compared to investing in the US markets, it seems a bit more confusing or even more complicated investing in Hong Kong companies or China companies, yep. especially with what you just mentioned, A-shares yeah, and yeah. ADR. So, so yeah. let's go to those, right? Help us right. to understand it. Yeah. So, um, okay. So A-shares is, is, as I said, the Chinese listed uh, companies uh, in the Chinese exchanges. Um, so they're primarily, you know, that they, they can only be accessed from, by international investors through the Stock Connect. And then obviously Chinese investors buy into mm-hmm. that market. But the A-shares market is very retail driven. So sort of 70, 75% of turnover is by retail investors, whereas the Hong Kong market, it's the reverse, right? So 70 to 75% of the turnover, daily turnover in Hong Kong is driven by institutions, professional investors, whereas retail investors don't really move markets that much in Hong Kong. So you don't see the wild swings that you might see in China, which is, I guess, another reason in China, the daily caps on movements up and down in the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges are capped at 10%. Uh, so stocks can't move up or down more than 10% in in China. Um, so hate shares in Hong Kong. Hate so shares. Hate shares. Mm. This is a this is basically a Chinese share that is got a is listed in the mainland, but then also has a Hong Kong listing. So for example, you know Ping An Insurance, which has a A share, and then it has the hate share in in Hong Kong. And then there are red chips, but that's a very small group of companies in Hong Kong. So red chips are companies that don't have a mainland listing, uh, but are domiciled in China, but are listed in uh, are listed in Hong Kong. So for example, you have 
um, Lenovo, which uh, they were trying to list in China, but that didn't go through. Um, they're obviously domiciled in China, but they're listed in Hong Kong. Their sole listing is in Hong Kong. Any reason why it's got Richards? I think it's mainly just, re- I think, reflecting China, the China heritage, Chinese heritage, and okay, then, blue, and chip, then, and blue then chips, and I guess red chips, chips. and then, I guess yeah. companies that are a bit more established. So, for example, China Mobile, until it just IPO'd in Shanghai or it just carried out, that was considered a red chip because it was previously only listed in Hong Kong and then obviously uh, dual listed in New York, um, but then it got delisted. How about ADRs? ADRs, sorry, ADRs, ADRs, ADRs and VREs. Yeah, yeah, let me <laughs> So there are a lot to cover. Um, yes. So ADRs, you know, American Depository Receipts, which is the Chinese ADRs, basically, you know, the companies that list, but they, a lot of the Chinese ADRs, which is basically a New York or, yeah, New York listed Chinese company, they list via the VIE, which is a variable interest entity. And so what that is, is it actually means that you don't have any rights as a shareholder to that company. Um, it's the controlling stake is with the owner and usually the founder. And so they've gotten approval to uh, to conduct business in China. And what they do is they set up a shell company either in the Cayman or BVI, which is British Virgin Islands. Um, and then you buy into that shell company uh, and you obviously have access to those uh, to that to that business fear that shell company. So uh, that's something that I think a lot of people maybe aren't aware of is that a lot of these ADRs are set up with VIEs and even Tencent actually in Hong Kong is set up with a with a VIE. And so that is uh, a structure that is used a lot. And the Chinese government has shown a bit more caution towards it and not a huge fan of that that structure. But I think in sort of some, I don't think that's really the issue for investors. It's more the delisting risk in the US that would probably be more of the the focus for investors who are or at least to hold Chinese stocks in uh, in the US. Okay, so compared yeah. to investing in so-called a shell company, although you mentioned that the Chinese government might not be too happy with that. Yeah. But you think the bigger risk is in the delisting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the delisting is is because I think... What happens in a delisting? <laughs> right. So, what happens to my stock? Yeah. So, so China Mobile was a good example of a delisting that happened, um, I guess, so that was, that was last year. It got announced just before Trump left office. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happened with him is or what happened with rather China Mobile is the shares um, got suspended. Uh, typically, you would be able to, you'd have some time probably, actually. You'd probably know, I guess, maybe in the months or weeks leading up to a, an announcement whether something was likely to get delisted. Uh, and if it is delisted or if it's suspended, you can technically still tri- uh, swap those shares for something if they're in Hong Kong or if they're in another listing uh, listing location. Um, but there's no guarantee. So you have to make sure that your broker supports the Hong Kong market or has access to the Hong Kong market. So I think a lot of people maybe who held China Mobile in the US didn't have a broker that supported the Hong Kong market. So they were left in limbo. You know, They basically can trade the shares. Um, but even if it does, that does happen. They will usually move to the OTC, which is over the counter. Um, and what that is, is that sort of the pink slips, but that gives you, it's not an official exchange. So there's no reporting standards and no um, oversight, I guess, of from regulators, but it still allows you to trade it, but it's still liquidity is a lot lower. So that's what happened with Luckin Coffee when mm-hmm. the whole fraud uh, accusation got you know uncovered, that got delisted and then it traded OTC and it still trades OTC today, actually, um, but it's actually up from its lows. So that was a, that's a bit, it's a bit random. It's like, it was at 95 cents right after delisting, but now it's at $9 something. So how does it work for a retail investor to trade OTC over the counter? 
Well, you don't actually need to. Um, you just basically put in. It's it's like it's like a normal you know buy and sell. It's just the spreads are probably going to be wider because the liquidity is yeah. not there, and then you don't really know. You know, there's there's no oversight, no accounting re- reporting standards. So it's just you don't really want to own a pink slip unless it's a massive global company that maybe is I don't know in Japan or something or somewhere else which doesn't have a, a U.S. listing which might trade OTC. But technically, not many people who want to own really great companies own like a pink slip. Yeah, because okay. it tends Tell to be us a more bit about more. this pink slip. Like how much you know? What does it represent? Well, that also represents just you know access to access to the company. It's mm-hmm. just it, you have the right to trade it. You have the right to, to to own the shares. It's just it's not listed on an exchange, so it doesn't have oversight of its business and its operations. So it's basically like a share. Um, it works the same as a share. It's just not regulated. I think that's the main key difference. Okay, I think there's really yeah. a lot to learn. Yeah. yeah, about the Hong Kong market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any yeah. other unique characteristics of the Hang Seng Index or the Hong Kong market? You mentioned that it's able to amend its composition. Yeah, so they've been moving towards obviously greater representation by Chinese companies. Um, so they were initially at fifty a few years ago. Now it's up at sixty-four in, in less than eighteen months. Um, and they have been moving away from property. So property and construction, just like Singapore, used to represent quite a big chunk of the listed space. Uh, same with banks. Banks used to represent about 45%. Um, and now, or financials rather, which includes insurance and banks. Um, and now that's down to about 35%. So if you do buy into the Hang Seng Index, it's useful to be aware, if you buy an ETF of the Hang Seng Index, that you still are exposed a lot to banks and financials. Um, just like Singapore, if you buy the Straits Times Index ETF, you know you you still have a lot of exposure to DBS, OCBC, UOB. So in Hong Kong, it would be HSBC and like AIA and you know China Construction Bank and uh, all the state-owned banks. So even though it's moving a bit away from uh, overexposure to banks, there's still a big bank uh, sort of financial exposure there. So that's something to be a bit more wary of. So for me, when I talk about the Hang Seng, I've always said it's better to pick your own stocks in the Hong Kong market just because if you buy an ETF, you've been looking at sort of, I mean, last year returns were 14, there was down 14%. And then over the past five years, you've total return of about 6%. So it's been a bit, it's been, yeah, not very good, let's just say, <laughs> over the past mm, I mean, sort of like five, 10 that's years. That's partly because the composition is changing, right? Yeah, composition is changing. And you've had a lot of sun, a lot of companies um, in Sunset Industries, like banks, so HSBC has been an absolutely terrible performer. Um, you've seen a lot of state-owned banks that haven't done anything in 10 years, like um, ICBC, CCB, China Construction Bank, um, Bank of China, uh, a lot of the oil companies, you know, like PetroChina, Sinopec. So those guys you've got exposure to in the in the index and you've really not really wanted that exposure to the Hang Seng Index, which is why for me, when you do look at the Hang Seng, it's useful to, to to really understand the companies in the Hang Seng Index and which ones you want to have exposure to rather than just buying an ETF, because it would have been a similar outcome to if you had put money into the Straits Times Index ETF, for example, over the past 10 years. Not not great returns. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what do you think about this tagline that you know China tech firms are coming home? Right? Uh, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Yeah. They are. I mean, they you've are? seen okay. that. you've seen that with a lot of the listings in the past couple of years, uh, secondary listings. I mean, Baba came back and then JD is listed. Uh, secondary listing, um, Baidu, you know, Yum China, which owns the KFC franchise in, in China. So a lot of these companies, they have that ADR listing. So this is more insurance, right? They just list, they have the secondary share listing. It's an opportunity to raise money in Hong Kong, which is great. And now that the Hong Kong exchange has actually just amended its rules at the end of last year to say that 
if companies then want to change their primary listing to Hong Kong um, and they're dual listed, they can do that. So if you have the Hong Kong shares of Alibaba and so you have the US shares of Alibaba and you want to change it to Hong Kong, I would suggest that would be the way to go because now you there would basically be no delisting risk being uh, you know invested in the Hong Kong uh, in the Hong Kong shares of Baba because they would continue to trade there no matter what. And so you've seen a lot of the flows move actually the trading flows move away from Baba listing in the US towards the Hong Kong. So for example, Temasek has exchanged a lot of its shares over the past couple of years. A lot of the institutional investors have moved a lot of their shares that they owned in the US and exchange it for Hong Kong shares because it just makes more sense from a geopolitical perspective and risk management to move it to Hong Kong. Uh, because if it's listed, you know, the premium and the spread is not, not really going to be that much, but you don't want to deal with the political risk of holding the US ADR because they are starting to come down on Chinese companies in the US and especially on investor protection um, and especially with the environment that you're seeing in China where it's more of a bipartisan agreement that China is a, now a strategic competitor, right? So I think that's the one thing that the Republicans and Democrats can actually agree on in, in the U.S. is that China is a is a competitor, um, and you know a lot of people say as a threat. So it's not a great environment for Chinese companies to be listing in the U.S. And so I think over the next sort of three four years, you'll see that uh, veer off in terms of you know come off in terms of the funds raised there, and and the delisting de risk will probably be quite quite real. So I think. For most investors, it just makes much more sense to buy the Hong Kong listing of anything listed in the U.S. Yep. So if you invest in, in Chinese companies, delisting yep. risk should de-listing be top risk of should the be, mind. Especially in the yeah, yeah, U.S., that's it. That's delisting risk is the big thing. Um, and you're going to see more companies uh, list secondary offerings in Hong Kong this year for sure. So PDD, Pindodor, for example, that's got a market cap of about 70, 75 billion. That's a big one. And then NEO, which is the EV company. So those are the two ones that are being flagged as big candidates for Hong Kong fundraisers this year. Okay. Yeah. What do you see in 2022? What's your main focus? Um, and are there specific companies that you're looking at? I think my main focus for 2022 would be, I think, healthcare. I think healthcare is a really big one that has flown under the radar maybe a little bit in China just because... You know, biotech is still really early stage in, in China. Uh, you know, you're seeing that with they're still to come out with an mRNA vaccine rather for the virus. And they're working on that. I know I'm sure loads of Chinese companies are working on that. And so that's something that is also going to play into just R&D and and the support that the Chinese government really wants to give the healthcare sector. They really want to drive R&D in the healthcare sector longer term. So for me, that's something I've been watching over the past maybe 12, 18 months. And I think it's going to become more interesting just as the Chinese government aligns its, you know, five-year plans, its vision for the future and a more wholesome society in China. They obviously want healthcare to be controlled and they want good, I guess, cost-effective solutions. And so healthcare is going to play a big part in that. And in terms of the actual Chinese economy, I think, you know, the, the variant is definitely a risk to the Chinese economy this year because you're seeing certain outbreaks in, in parts of China um, and that could hit consumer spending, that could hit the economy. Um, but I think overall, you know, healthcare is one of those sectors, even globally, that's seen as defensive just because there'll always be that demand there for, for the companies that are either providing the uh, medical equipment or the devices or doing the R&D. So those are companies that I'm kind of, you know, a bit more interested in. Uh, and they tend to, there are some listings in Hong Kong that are healthcare related, but then there's also a lot of a lot of companies in the Asia markets that's also what healthcare. What are those companies, just to give us a sense? Uh, well, in Hong Kong, you have, you know, you have these 
CDMOs, which is contract and development manufacturing organizations. So for example, like Wuxi Biologics, which is a company that I've talked about before, which I really like. It's a company that basically is the picks and shovels play for bio uh, for biotech, mm-hmm. right? So what they do is they do a lot of the trials for big, big pharma guys. So big pharma who don't have maybe the in-house capabilities or they don't want to build their own testing uh, organization and platform and technology platform in-house, they outsource that. And, you know, Wuxi Biologics is one of the first ports of call for these types of companies. And so when you do test any drug or any, you know, mRNA vaccine, it has to go through phase one, phase two, phase three, like pre-marketing and then marketing and then, you know, actual production. And so every one of those phases, there is money to be made in that in that stage, right? And so what Wuxi Biologics does is it it carries out or partners with all these biotech firms globally to sort of test things, to kind of create these uh, create these platforms and then also make sure that everything's done in a in a really high quality standard. So what they've done is they've built a lot of different facilities, testing facilities in different countries. So they have a lot in China, obviously, they have uh, quite a few in Europe and they have, you know, some in Cambridge and Massachusetts in the US, which is a big healthcare uh, hub. So they are global in their reach, which I also really like something for Chinese companies, you know, being global, it has a bit more of the diversification from revenue. You know, there was actually a a incident a few, about a month ago, where there was some worries about biotechs being, um, being, uh, what would you say, sort of uh, limits placed on them by by the US government. But I think because Wuxi and those types of companies, they only deal with commercial uh, types of biotech and biofarms. I don't think there are any issues. So I think it's only if there are companies working with the Chinese government that might be sensitive that you'll see um, you'll see sanctions being placed on. That's what that's the word I was looking for. Sanctions. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right, so right. Um, so that that was uh, that provided I think an opportunity for some people who wanted to buy on the dip and it has recovered. Uh, you know, it's come back pretty much to where it was pre the pre that news, and so they weren't placed on any blacklist, but there was rumors that they were going to be. Um, I can see they're very passionate in this. You've been yeah. reading out on it a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you've explained the, the development and the technology, right? What got you interested? Like, what's the thesis behind this? Uh, I think it's a bit more about. This is more a because I mean, when you biotech, think about, you know, yeah, biotech, when healthcare, you think, China. Wow. Yeah, when you think about. Arc. I mean, because you know, I really like Kathy Wood. I really respect her and what she does with um, with the with the Arc series of funds. And then you obviously have the genomics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the problem with genomics is that unless you're really in the weeds and understand, and you maybe have I don't know a bioscience degree, and you Background. you really understand everything about the drug development process, a lot of it is more of a punt on whether these drugs get get approved, right? And so. Wuxi for me was a bit more at the high level. Like if people are, or if biotechs are going to be testing and you believe in this trend over the next decade, this is something that doesn't have the risk of like a drug, of a specific drug succeeding. It's a bit more, they're going to be testing for everybody. So they win no matter what happens and no matter who succeeds in, you know, I don't know, cancer development or oncology or, or heart disease or whatever drug that you're looking for. It doesn't rely on a drug for them to be successful. It's a bit more about the trend and are they looking at exploiting a mega trend? And for me, the mega trend towards genomics, towards testing, towards healthcare and all these different vaccines that Moderna's kind of come to represent, I think that's something that's only going to grow over the next decade. And in China, they're going to want to be there with the US, right? With the Moderna's, with the Pfizer's. Um, And so for me, that just seemed a bit more of a, an interesting diversification away from just tech because everyone in China is obsessed with tech, right? Yes. It's always tech, tech, yeah, tech. And, tech. And that's great. But then you see what happened over the past 
mm-hmm. sort of uh, 12, 18 months and it's not so great, you know, the, the things change. So I think with China, that's in the Chinese government, that's nothing that is going to offend them longer term, you know, healthcare. I really find it difficult to get my head around any particular situation um, where they might be offended by what Wuxi does. Again, Wuxi isn't involved in pricing drugs, which I really like. They're not involved, their business doesn't get involved in pricing of drugs. So they're not a biofarm that produces these drugs, which again, could be capped if, if the Chinese government caps drug prices, right? So I think longer term, the Chinese government wants more R&D into this sector. They want there to be that development. They want there to be that, um, that innovation. And so I think that there will be that support. And so for me, that just seemed like a like one of the best plays in that sector and the, and the best in class play of that sector. Exciting yeah. developments. Yes. I mean, healthcare. Healthcare. Biotech. Yeah. Biotech, yeah. I mean, okay, genomics. But of yeah. course, you need to have a bit of background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. China. China, yeah. <laughs> And they put all these keywords and then China. Like, China, you know, something yeah. for us to think about, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it has like the highest obesity rate. Oh, sorry, not obesity, diabetes. Diabetes rate, oh, not okay. obesity. <laughs> I was going to say, no, no, definitely not diabetes. <laughs> not China Obesity, <laughs> no. Um, but I think per capita, the diabetes rate in China is one of the highest, if not the highest in the world. Um, so there are lots of, what you would term rich world diseases now coming to the fore in China, right? So I think that's something that the government has to deal with. Hospital beds are extremely under uh, sort of, you know, understaffed. There's not enough hospital beds per how many hundred thousand compared to the US. If you look at the levels, it's a lot lower. Um, so things like Pengang Healthcare, Pengang Good Doctor, another thing that, that I own would, you know, that for me is a bit more focused on the long term and believing in the, the whole uh, digital digital healthcare aspect, and so that has been hit hard because I think there's more to do with the data and the, the the sensitivity of data to do with patients and stuff. So I think that's been hit by the whole overall broad tech clampdown. But I think longer term, those types of companies, you know, they're trying to serve a, a particular need for Chinese society. So I think that aligns with what the Chinese government wants eventually. All right, yeah. thank yeah. you, thank you too. No worries. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for listening all the way here. Stay after this outro because usually we have some bonus content right at the end. It's like the end credit scene of a movie. But before that, I hope you've learned something useful today. If you like more of this content, join our Telegram group, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter. For all this and more, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. My name is Andrew. Stay tuned for the next episode of Chill with the Financial Coconuts. What is one of our core life principles? I think... One of the core life principles for me is to keep learning and to keep learning from others. It sounds a bit corny, but as an investor or someone who's really interested in politics and history and the markets, um, you always learn and you always read and understand things and learn from great investors or you know great historians and that kind of thing. But I always try to stay a bit more humble and understand that every market cycle or every you know drawdown or every new event geopolitically is going to be different to the past. And so... Yeah, that applies to everything in life, right, as well. You just keep learning and just keep improving and never think that you've uh, sort of got it in terms of I'm good and I, I'm performing really well. So just staying humble and keep learning. And I always like to, yeah, just discover more and learn more. What is a piece of financial advice that you think should be shared more often? Okay, well, this one is an interesting one. There was, there were quite a few that were up for uh, contention for me, but what I think the the... The key one for me is something that, um, was it the co-founder of The Motley Fool has said. So David Gardner, I used to work at The Motley Fool, was 
more about you know adding to your winners, like watering the flowers and cutting the weeds, so cutting your losers. And I think when we look at our portfolios, we generally have this inclination to see something that has come down a lot, and then we want to add to it. I mean, I guess in this environment with the drawdown, that might there might be a an exception, but over the long term, if you're seeing something that's come down for five years and you're still adding to it, there might be an issue, right? And whenever we see something go up too much then we start to cut it because we're like, oh, it's just too, it's gone up too quickly and we're uncomfortable or it's become too big. But if the business is doing well and it continues to perform, these winners tend to keep winning uh, and the losers, you know, they tend to keep losing. So I think that's something that we don't think about enough when we add names to the portfolio. We maybe look for the next great idea out there and we get really excited by another company, but sometimes the best companies are things that have been working for us already and are in our portfolio. And we can just add to that, right? Because I think adding to those is always something that's underappreciated because it's not new and exciting and it's gone up and people want to take profits. But if you let it compound, it can continue to compound for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So I think, yeah, watering your watering your flowers, keeping your winners, adding to your winners and just yeah, trying to cut those losers. When you need to have cash or you need to take cash out, don't, don't, uh, don't take profit. Try and cut the ones that have not performed for you well over like three to five years. Okay, yeah. last question for you. Yeah. What is one area of your life that you're giving additional focus right now? Okay, so right now I'm focusing a bit more on exercise, trying to keep fit. I think during this whole pandemic, we haven't been able to do anything in Singapore. Obviously, we've been able to uh, maybe run and I'm not a runner. Did so... you pick up the cycling habit? Yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't actually pick up the cycling. So I'm not, I'm into, I'm doing the bike in the gym. So I'm trying to be a bit more active and I do yoga, um, but I've had a bit of a wrist injury recently. But you know, I technically used to play football like weekly pre-pandemic, and that's not really been possible during this whole pandemic. So I think it's something that a lot of us maybe forget about or we've neglected a bit because of the pandemic. And it's something that doesn't really get a lot of attention. Um, and so I don't have much time with two kids as well. So I try and fit in as much daily exercise or, you know, every other day I try and do some exercise. So I think that just makes you feel better. It's healthy. And uh, it's something that we don't focus on so much nowadays, I feel. How old are two kids? Uh, there are three and nine months. Yeah, oh, not, nine months. not old enough to play football with. No, definitely not old enough to play football with. Me. <laughs> not no, the no, nine no. months, at no, least. No, no. <laughs> Hopefully in future, yeah. Right. All right. Thank you. Yeah, no Thank worries. You yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.